I feel very strongly that any culturally competent therapist needs to be in a patrol car. And I don't mean for an hour or two when it's convenient between dropping your kids off. I took each shift, I took full shifts. They'd get me in the car and they'd say to me, you know, how long are you gonna be here for? And then we'd do, you know, eights, tens, and twelves, so it just depends. And I'd be like, uh, I'm here for the whole shift. A gentleman who was you know, on the Golden Gate Bridge that day to die. And when he finally gets the, um, the, the individual comes, comes to the other side of the bridge and Kevin says to him, what did I say that made you change your mind? And he said, you didn't say anything, you listened. There is so much power in that. I learned to listen and I learned to bear witness to pain and I learned to be able to understand that I was not going to solve a problem, but a pain shared would be a pain divided, and I could divide that pain. You guys raised me. I have been working with cops since I had been 25 years old. I am 60. So being able to, to look back I've only known my life with you guys, and I have nobody in my family that's a police officer. Nobody. So I, I know no other world. It is truly the slice of pie I am really good at. I knew what my expertise was, and I never pretended that it was in anything else. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal and we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain but it's more common and also harder to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say my tooth is aching than to say my heart is broken. C.S. Lewis. First responders know all too well the stressors this profession can produce and how they can change us. But sometimes we seem to be in our own little snow globe in life. Our own ecosystem will consist of family, significant others, friends, both close and acquaintances, and they all contribute to our lives, good and bad. Imagine what happens when a snow globe is shaken up. It's cloudy. It's hard to see. Hard to make decisions because of the blindness from that snow. You're in the middle of the storm. It's impossible to see the outside of that globe, and even harder to really see the suffering. The anger that your family sees daily. 
the effects of the drinks you take to numb the pain. Or return to that sweet spot feeling so you can relax and forget the trauma you see or the emotions you take in from helping others. The blizzard inside of that globe can become thicker, the visibility denser, and before you realize it, your entire mind, body, and soul can be consumed. Today's guest has dedicated her life to being a person who can take a look from outside that globe to see the bigger picture of that clouded ecosystem and can provide tools to that person inside that storm to find their way, to calm the snowfall and provide some clarity. This guest is a psychotherapist that is lectured all over the country. She exclusively works with police officers and is lectured on PTSD and vicarious trauma, including undiagnosed PTSD and the fallout from departmental silence after officers are involved in critical incidents. Ms. Samuels is part of a renowned national research team looking into the role concussions play in the mental health of law enforcement officers and the potential connection to suicide. In 2004, she created a national hotline for police officers to be available. When that globe is shaken and the people inside need clarity and a third-party view to calm that storm, this is a story of Copline. And this is a story of the great Stephanie Samuels. Stephanie Samuels, welcome to the ATL stage. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So I'm gonna, before we get going into the uh, dive into the story, I just want to give a lot of mentions of who actually is here. Uh, the great Danny Canetti's here. He's actually taking Russell the computer away from me. He's taking the sound. So this uh, this episode will actually be done properly as far as the edits go. Uh, we got Kent Wolverton who's always here, and we also have a Special. We have a couple of special guest co-hosts, uh, Rowlett PD Officer Laura McPherson. Laura, say hi. Hi, thank you. And also, Dustin, tell the listener a little bit about yourself. So, my name is Dustin Skillinger. I'm the state director for the Texas Law Enforcement Peer Network. Uh, retired Marine, uh, doing everything I can to try to help officers across the state of Texas. Yeah, I ask you to come on here because you, you actually know Stephanie and, um, you know, you're going to be able to ask a lot more intelligent questions than I am. And, that's and, that's yeah. debatable. <laughs> no, I don't know. I'm good at faking it. So, Stephanie, I want to get into the flow of your life and also what your mission in, uh, in starting Copline. But we're going to start at the beginning. But before we get into that, I want to go into a story that um, you and I had talked about offline that I want to know more about. And I think it's relevant to this department. So... Can you tell the listener why why you have a connection with Dallas PD and when it started? Absolutely. So, uh, so I started dating a guy when I was living out in California, who uh, who lived here in Dallas. So, uh, so I was visiting him, but at the time I was uh, I was debating whether or not to become a police officer out in California. So I was doing a lot of ride uh, ride alongs with uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. They had it was the eighties, so Gangs were, were huge back then, uh, and, uh, and I was just having the time of my life before I realized that that the world can change in, in a nanosecond. You know, I was in my 20s, and, uh, and I remember the first time when I was in a police car, and, uh, and they had informed me that, because I was in the back seat, because I always rode uh, two people in a vehicle out in California, and uh, they told me that the only thing that gangs couldn't stand uh, besides each other was was police so that they would shoot up the police car 
and that their job was not to get me out of the back seat and that that the windows uh, that the doors didn't open that I have to figure out how to get out myself so that was that was the start of my first ride along out there anyway so so learned about gangs learned about um, gang writing and stuff and I thought I was far more important than I was I wasn't important at all and I was in my 20s so I truly wasn't important so I had uh, so I was coming to Dallas to see my boyfriend and I was like you know there's no better way of seeing towns than doing ride-alongs so I, I called up Dallas PD, and I, I think I had spoken to chief secretary, what have you, kind of introduced myself, said that I was, you know, had been doing a lot of ride-alongs, you know, was pretty good at reading gang writing, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and lo and behold, the chief authorizes me to do this ride-along. So, you know, make, make arrangements for the time and, you know, say to my boyfriend, you know, hey, I'm going to be going out with, you know, Dallas police, you know, tonight, blah, blah, blah. So these, these two young good-looking cop show up at the door I'm like 23 24 years old and they they get up to the door and they're like uh hi uh we're, we're here to pick up uh Ms. Uh, Ms. Stephanie Samuels is she here I'm like yes and they're like okay they're like do you mind getting her I'm like no I don't mind getting her and and there's like this awkward silence you know I'm fucking with them and they don't realize that and so they're uh, <laughs> so they're standing there like you know, ma'am, ma'am, I, I, I was just wondering, you know, we, we have, we, we have to get back on the, on the road. Can you please get her? And I looked at her, I looked at them and I go, boys, you're looking at her. And they turned around and one of them goes, yes. And I, and I watched him and I go, I go, let me guess. You guys thought I was going to be taller. And from that point on, so anyway, so we had a awesome night. So they had literally been assigned to me. Little did I know, I just thought I was patrolling. So they took me to, I think it's called The Hill. I mean, again, this goes back 35 years in my life. And so they were concerned about gang writing. And literally on, on a wall that they had taken me to was the word Crips. And I was like, well, we don't have to worry about that. I mean, that's not how they, they, they write. They've got subsets or what have you. So anyway, but from there, so we, you know, we spent our 38 seconds there with the word no. Um, and then... And then it was like game on. Then I got to like sightsee throughout Dallas where, uh, you know, where President Kennedy was shot. It was just, it was wonderful. Loved these guys. Couldn't have been nicer. And fell in love with Dallas. Clearly married the wrong man that was in Dallas. But anyway, um, so that was my, that was where Dallas started. Favorite skyline to this day in my life is Dallas. It is a beautiful skyline. So you're coming from L.A. and at the time... That was the mecca of the the birth of gangs in the United States. I mean, everybody you saw. I mean, a lot of people seen colors, and a lot of it it started out west, and it just gravitated east and swept across the country. And Dallas was part of that. And back then, of course, you know, again, this is one word. I mean, and it was really taken quite out of context. And and you had me for one night, and that's it. You know, and and what happened after that? I also, I think, one of the things that had really I was, I was still pretty naive back then, is is listening to your officers talking about, you know, the drugs and the guns that were being run in from, from Jamaica, um, and that, you know, the government was aware and kind of looking at kind of what gets stopped and what doesn't get stopped, and, you know, this belief in, in truth, justice, in the American way, and, and, and that, that cops are the good guys, and then you have bad guys, and, you know, it's just such an amazing learning experience, um, and, and obviously over the next 30, 35 years for me, um, 
continue that learning experience. I think everybody should do cop ride alongs, even if, especially the people that don't necessarily agree with the cops, and just to come and get a taste of of what this life is like, as opposed to just watching it on TV. I I couldn't agree more, and and for me, for being a clinician that that works with with cops, I feel very strongly that any culturally competent therapist needs to be in a patrol car. And I don't mean for an hour or two when it's convenient between dropping your kids off. I took each shift. I took full shifts. And you can imagine, you know, so for the first, so for the first like three or four hours, because I rode with a tremendous amount of departments back east, they would you know, I, they, they, they'd get me in the car and they'd say to me, you know, how long are you going to be here for? And then we'd do, you know, eights, tens, and twelves. So it just depends. And I'd be like, uh, I'm here for the whole shift. And you watch their faces and their asses pucker and they're like, you, you know, we, we do a 12-hour shift. And I'm like, if you need to coop, it's okay. So for the first like three or four hours, they were absolutely convinced I was put in there by either IA or the chief. <laughs> and then by like hour four, they realize there is not a fucking soul that ever vetted me because nobody would ever put anybody with this mouth <laughs> in this politically incorrect in a vehicle for an entire shift. So he spoke their language. <laughs> you knew their love language right from the start. Yeah, it's just uh, I, I think I was wired for their love language. <laughs> well, and you clearly built on that. And we're gonna you just kind of rewound a little bit to. Uh, 35 years of having the first taste of the Dallas skyline and Dallas PD. But I want to go back a little further and talk about early life where you grew up. Can you tell us about it? Sure. Um, Grew up in Westchester County in New York. Uh, Spent the first 12 years there. Uh, My dad was an attorney. Uh, Dad had been an attorney. Actually, uh, he had worked in D.C. before I was born. Worked uh, in the Southern District in New York and then uh, ended up in private practice and uh, did entertainment law. So worked for NBC in compliance and practice, and, uh, and he's gone a lot. So it spent a lot of, he spent a lot of time on the West Coast, and so the decision was made for the family to actually move out West, and my dad ended up being an attorney working for a company called Filmways, which did uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, uh, Green Acres and stuff. So I have an F-150 because um, I have a, I have that cop sense of humor. So I have an F-150 in New Jersey with a license plate that says clamp it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies and uh, Green Acres. I watched both of those. Yep. Growing up. Yep. So how long did you did you just live out there for? So I did. No, I spent from the time I was twelve to the time I was twenty five. So I did. Uh, I did all you know formal education, uh, elementary school, high school, uh, college, uh, and my first master's out there. And then I met the guy from Dallas. I actually hired his mom. I was working at a uh, a doctor's office at the time, so I hired his mom as the office manager. And every Jewish family is, have I got a son for you? So anyway, that's how I ended up meeting him. He was working for Six Flags when Six Flags was here. And, uh, and then Larry ended up getting, uh, getting headhunted for a job at Madison Square Garden. He headed up food and merchandise for them. So I told him that the only way I was moving was to put a ring on my finger. Bad move. The United States does not negotiate with terrorists. He should have never negotiated with me. It was doomed from the beginning. <laughs> So well, you live and learn. That's it. So I ended up back east um, for the second time, which is um, 
after marrying him. And you went to college where? UCLA. You, oh, that's right. Okay, yep. and we're going to get into the colors uh, while there's significance of what you're doing now. So <laughs> you figured that out. Yes. Yeah, I did. Yep. I did. I did a little bit of homework on you. You did. I did some cyber stalking. Yeah. So when did you decide to get into the mental health field and why? Ah, um, I think I always knew that I had a um, a propensity for this. I, I think, you know, as, as you talk to, to cops, uh, they'll tell you that, you know, since they were little that they knew they wanted to be in, in law enforcement. I think I always knew that it was something that um, that resonated with me. Um, I was always a kid that was quite introspective and looked at um, looked at the reason why people did things. So in high school, uh, we had a um, like a peer support in high school, and so uh, so I ended up joining that in my freshman year, um, and then I think sophomore year. I was able to, um, to because I think freshman year we did training outside, and then sophomore year I ended up doing it. So I was about 15 years old, um, and and we dealt with with other students who had um, some academic issues. And mind you, I wasn't that strong academically, so um, so for me that part of it wasn't going to be my strong suit. Uh, the other part was. And, uh, and it was during my sophomore year that it, it was somebody else who had been part of, um, of this peer, uh, peer support unit. I guess her mom was a psychologist. And so they had talked about this all done, you know, on a very different level than me. Um, but they decided that they wanted to do a teen line, that teens talk to teens. And so, so teen line, um, Teen line still exists today. This is forty. This is forty some odd years later. So, uh, so it was the first hotline for it was, it, and it's a helpline. So it's four hours a night. And so I, I was truly one of those um, in in that first focus group that that dealt with um, some of the training manuals and ended up being being the, one of the first teens that ever answered uh, the phone for Teen Line. So that's. So I've been doing I've been doing that type of stuff since I was 15. So and I never changed. I mean, I literally went into um, into college as a psych major and came out a psych major. I mean, and like my roommate, you know, like everybody else had gone in for something else. And I love my roommate. My my roommate went in for uh, pre med and she came out with music after failing like bio three, you know, or bio five three times. She's like clearly not going to be a doctor. <laughs> What did you have a natural knack for when you, that you found out early on in counseling and in the training for it? So today I can probably identify what it is. Um, I can feel you before I hear you. So I have a way of being able to connect to a person without you ever opening up your mouth. And sometimes that is my greatest gift and many times that is my greatest curse because I have officers that walk in and I literally get get anxious. Like my entire body just has this, this anxiety that I can feel that's coming from somebody else. So I, I think when I was younger, I was able to connect to people and not judge them. And and I was able to hear, you know, I, in the beginning, like everybody else, they think it's about giving advice. It's not. You need to shut the fuck up. 
you, you need to be able to truly listen. You know, somebody once said, you know, God gave us two ears and a mouth. It should be the same portion of, you know, proportion of, of how, you, how you speak is that you need to, to listen twice, uh, twice as much as you speak. And I think that's very, very accurate. So, and, and then, you know, having gone through, through uh, teen line training, which is still to this day, you know, the, the training model that is used on almost every hotline including what ended up being used for Copline. And, you know, I know that we'll get to that later. But that foundation was so amazing at such a young age for me. Yeah, I was reading about Teen Line, and it is fascinating because when I was going back to when I was in high school many years ago, it, we, I was part of a peer assistance leadership program, and it was basically was like a peer support amongst the other high schoolers. I don't know how I got involved in that because I, I was a goofball and a prankster. And I was I was big in the sports, but it it was a lot of fun, and I still have a lot of friends to this day that I had to reach out to. And even I, I remember back there was um, there was a young a young girl. She was a she was, and I was a senior, and she was like a, a freshman, but she had lost both parents, mm-hmm. uh, and she was dealing with some stuff. And I didn't know what the hell I was doing. There was no manual. It was just go out and talk to them. But I learned looking back now, I learned a lot doing that. But I, we weren't aware of any teen line. And was that a national? So back then it was not national. Was I mean, California. It's, correct. Um, and, and I will tell you that training was unbelievable. I mean, I, I don't, I can't imagine, you know, what you're saying. I can't imagine having done that without literally, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks worth of training. So, yeah, look, looking back, I had no training and no experience in dealing with people that I wasn't much older than and I had my own issues as well and I got selected and and looking back it was an honor to be selected but there was no training and you talk about the training for teen line what are what are some of the pillars of it that made it so successful absolute number one key is is training and active listening skills Um, is is being able to understand the importance of being able to listen. There is a great um, video. What is last name is Briggs? Is Riggs and is Briggs? Um, first name he's California Highway Patrol, and he is the one that ended up um, on the Golden Gate Bridge, and talks about um, about this relationship he had with this individual, and. Um, and it was, it was a, a gentleman who was, you know, on the Golden Gate Bridge that day to die, at Kevin, Kevin Briggs. And, uh, and when he finally gets the, um, the, the individual comes, comes to the other side of the bridge, and he says, and, and Kevin says to him, what did I say that made you change your mind? And he said, you didn't say anything, you listened. There is so much power in that. I learned to listen, and I learned to bear witness to pain, and I learned to be able to understand that I was not going to solve a problem, but a pain shared would be a pain divided, and I could divide that pain. Wow. And you built on that from that early training 
so I did. So, you know, I, I went on, like I said, you know, graduated from high school, got into UCLA. Um, not a great choice for me. You know, you talk about background. My parents got divorced when I was 16. That had a profound effect on me. My brother, um, my brother was two years older. I was very, very close to him. He went, uh, he went cross country. My brother was at Brown University. So I was, you know, so I was now out there and dealing with, you know, parents divorce. And now it was time for me to kind of go do my thing. And I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to leave California, not because I was, loved California. I didn't want to leave my parents. I didn't want to leave my mom. Um, it was just, it was, it was a really, um, it was a really difficult time for me. I was struggling with my own um, body image issues, which I had struggled with through, um, throughout high school. I, I do talk about that because it, um, Elaine Leader, who headed up Teen Line, was just such an amazing um, mentor and role model for me. She just passed. Um, and I flew from New Jersey out to California um, for her celebration of life. And I, and I told this story there, and it's not one of my prouder stories, but it's, it's what makes me who I am. And I talked about having a, an eating disorder, and I talked about one night supposed to be, I was supposed to be on, uh, on Teen Line. And I, I had purged, I had taken laxatives, and I was now in the hospital. Teen Line was run out of um, the mental health section of Cedar sinai out in California. And so um, Thaline's mental health is where we answered the lines from. And so I was now at Cedar, so I was across the street. And I remember calling up Elaine, and I, and I needed to tell her what had happened. And I remember thinking to myself that she's going to say to me, well, you are just too fucked up to, to be a, a listener, so you're going to need to take time off. But I knew I, you know, I, had to, I had to take responsibility for what I did. So I called up Elaine, and I said, you know, Dr. Leader, you know, this is, this is Stephanie, and told her what happened. There was that horrible long silence, and I, I knew what was coming next. And she goes, what room are you in? She said, maybe we can transfer the calls there. And I thought to myself, oh, my God. Like, I was allowed to be this really kind of th this struggling teen and still be able to take care of others. She saw that dichotomy that lives inside of each one of us. You know, when people say, well, how can you be a therapist and you, you know, and you lose your temper? How can you be a police officer and, you know, fill in the blank? Because I'm human first. Because, because becoming what we become vocationally does not define who we are, but it becomes part of us. And most of the time, it's from our own struggles. It's from our own backgrounds that, that we become really good at, at what it is. So Elaine, um, so Elaine taught me so much about, about having th this dichotomy, about being able to struggle, about being able to, to overcome my struggles and being able to, to succeed. So it was, um, she was quite lovely in, uh, in being able to, to help with, with that as well. You talk about having your own struggles. Um, you're helping others and you're absorbing, absorbing a lot and a lot of other people's pain, anxiety, depression, uh, talking about some of their worst moments in their life and you're struggling yourself. What did you learn? What tools did you take away from all the training and what worked best for you? What were you doing for yourself? So, um, so I was always a runner. Uh, no, I was a, I was a jogger. I think running is far too ambitious than, 
<laughs> As I always say, you know, I have run to to marathons, and people are like, "Oh, what's your time?" I'm like, "I am a completer, not a computer." So, uh, and I live by that. So the answer is, it's none of your business. But I did complete them, and I did get medals. So it's under six hours. That's all I know. Um, so I, um, so I did. I, I learned to. I certainly learned that exercise for me was going to be one of the one of the stress releases. When I got older, um, it is a really expensive hobby. I love decorating. I really need a cheaper hobby. But coming home to to something that's beautiful after spending so much time in ugly for me is so important. I can literally spend hours looking for the perfect item to put into one spot in the house. And and that's just what I enjoy doing. And that's how you recalibrate. And also it's a distraction and it's a focus. It's to be focused on something else. It, yes, I, I think I did it, you know, I, I learned over the years. Um, and I wouldn't even say that I compartmentalize because, you know, I, I listen to other people that say, well, you know, I, I compartmentalize. I don't because those compartments aren't shut and locked or what have you. I am very much aware that they are there. You guys raised me. I have been working with cops since I have been 25 years old. I am 60. So being able to, to look back, I've only known my life with you guys. And I have nobody in my family that's a police officer. Nobody. Didn't marry cops, didn't date cops. So I, I know no other world. It is truly the slice of pie I am really good at. And even in dealing with cops, I'm like, if you have problems with your kids, don't fucking ask me. Like, I, I suck with kids, marital issues, unless it's because you're fucked up from something that you've seen or dealt with. I also suck at that one. Like, I'm not doing marriage counseling. Like, if your spouse comes in, it's because I need to explain why you're fucked up. That makes sense to them without making excuses for you. So, I, you know, I, I knew what, what my expertise was, and I never pretended that it was in anything else, truly. Ne never tried to be more than I was. Uh, I have one slice, and if you don't fall in it, I always say, if you want warm and fuzzy, three miles down the road and $100 an hour cheaper, not me. What would you define your specialty? You have that slice. Yeah. What is that? What is what is that for you? Uh, slice would be an officer, uh, an individual. Typically, um, most of the time, it's an officer. Uh, it can be a firefighter who's been involved in a critical incident, who has an incredibly tumultuous background. So the profile of a cop is this: somebody who has grown up in crisis, doesn't know how to live without crisis does very well in crisis. Somebody who has issues with a father figure, a significant loss early in life, somebody who has history of abuse, emotional, physical, sexual, or neglect, makes for a great cop, makes for a difficult home life. That is my expertise. That is a lot of boxes that uh, the listeners, there's a lot of people are going to be checking off a lot of those boxes. And, and, and we'll address, you know, some of those boxes, I'm sure as, as we, as we, continue and you know what brings an officer into treatment is not what keeps them there and and I feel as a therapist that if you do a good job 
that 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 becomes part of it. You know, that that the checkup from the neck up becomes what's normal. And that, you know, I, I think the greatest compliment I think anybody ever gave me was, um, it's like having coffee with a friend. You know, and it's obviously, it's not a friendship. It is a different relationship. You know, I got... I got hammered on a workers' comp stand. I've been sworn in as an expert in many different areas, and, and that was one of them. And the insurance, the attorney for the insurance company for workers' comp said, um, is, I'll call him Bob. Um, so, was, we'll call him Officer Smith. Is, so, is Officer Smith, do you like Officer Smith? So, of course, you know, the, the counsel, uh, you know, opposed, you know, he objected, and it was sustained, and I'm like, I'm like, I want to answer the question. So anyway, the, the, the attorney you know, rephrased it and you know, asked about you know, this relationship that I had. And so you know, counsel then opposed, the judge sustained, and so I got asked a third way. And of course, you know, our attorney went absolutely ballistic and said, Your Honor, and the judge said, this has been sustained. And I said, I'm answering it. And I went on, I said, you wanna know if I like him? I like him very much. I said, when you do what I do for a living, I better like him because I'm going to go into the bowels of fucking hell with him and he's going to have to trust me. And in order to do that, you better have a connection. I said, do I know his kids' names? I do. Do I know his kids' birthdays? Not a clue. Do I know his wife's name? Yes. Do I know what makes him anxious? Do I know what makes him not anxious? Of course I do. Does he know my kids' names? Probably. Does he know my husband's name? Probably not. Does he know my birthday? No. Have I ever gone out to eat with him? No. But do I like him? I like him very much. And the judge said to counsel, move on. She's answered it. And it was, you know, I, I just, when I look at attorneys, and I have all the respect in the world, you know, that we've got enough attorney jokes out there. But when, when I look at what an attorney is asked to do and what their role is when I'm on a stand, their role is to make me look like an asshole. I grew up with a dad who was an attorney. My brother became an attorney. And unless the two of them were questioning me, that's the only time I'm gonna shit. You know, when, when I dated in high school, this is how it went. It came home for dinner. I presented to counsel who I wanted to go out to dinner with, or <laughs> who my Saturday night was going to be Exhibit with. Exhibit A. Yeah, yeah. Correct. And then at, by the end of dinner, my father would render the opinion, and it would typically be no. And then I had to wait 24 hours for the appeal. Yep. And then I'd go on redirect. It was incredible. So by the time I ended up in courts in my 20s, I'm like... Like Marissa Tomei and my cousin Vinny. Yeah. Fuck, bring it on, man. You ain't got nothing on my dad. I'm actually taking notes from my, when my daughter starts dating. <laughs> so do you mostly see it throughout your career now, mostly first responders? Yes, absolutely. 100% are first responders. Um, and if they're not a first responder, they would be a spouse of a first responder that is trying to figure out how to deal with the first responder. Veterans too, right? Um, dual career veterans. So um, very, very common that my um, that my officers have been in the military as well. Absolutely. 
Um, and I ended up getting licensed in Oklahoma. So here's, here's your fun fact on how a Jew increased the Jewish population in an incredibly small town in Oklahoma by 100%. So, um, so my goal in life was to get off the grid, right? So I'm not going to get into politics, but 2008, figure out who became president. So I decided that I needed to move to a state that was going to always vote red and protect the Second Amendment. So Texas wasn't, um, every county was not voting and still doesn't, um, red at the time, and your taxes are um, high. And then Oklahoma, every county was voting red, and their taxes are reasonable. So, um, so between decorating stints online, I was looking at houses. So I found, because you know, doesn't everybody find you know, a house in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma? What the fuck did I know about Oklahoma? So anyway, uh, so I, I, I find you know, a house that looks like really cool on the outside. There are no pictures on the inside. So I knew what that when I was in store for there. <laughs> but it had land. And I figure this is just, this is my, this is, this is my, uh, my doomsday plan. I'm really never going to spend time there. So I'm fine. So anyway, I look at a bunch of properties, you know, Find find the person that's you know that that's listed on there to to call anyway. I'm still close to him to this day. Get, get land get taken to all these different houses. Sure enough, the one that I looked at, there's a reason why there were no pictures on the inside. Um, but I can decorate. That's my happy place. And Pottery Barn delivers to nowhere Oklahoma, so I'm golden here. I can turn shit into gold. So, uh, so we ended up, up getting that place, and, um, and it ended up becoming one of the most peaceful places for me. I mean, it's off of a dirt road, and, and when your navigation says, uh, navigation can no longer be used, you know, please use a map or whatever, I'm like, ah, I picked well. So I get this phone call. So two people knew that I lived there, my state farm agent and my real estate agent. Those are the two. That's it. So I get a phone call from the state farm agent who says, we have a problem. We've got a military vet who is doing really poorly. I was wondering, do you think maybe you could talk to him? And I'm like, you know, I'm not supposed to get off the grid. That I, I, I do what I do for a living. So, I, you know, of course the answer was, was yes, and then came the very quick answer of that I had to be licensed in the state of Oklahoma. Um, so... <laughs> So I, I'm licensed to do pro bono work because I won't charge them. Um, so I ended up uh, doing just that. So I ended up seeing, and it's only vets down there, because there is nobody in southeast Oklahoma that, uh, that has my credentials to be able to see them. And that was really rewarding. And the, the, the gentleman that I ended up seeing ended up recommending me. He wrote, I guess he wrote this really incredible letter um, and I got uh, something from a group that does boss lift. Have you ever seen? Uh, it is, it's with the military. And so what they do is they take organizations through, I forget the acronym because everything in the military has an acronym, um, d d that when they, when they come back from uh, military to be employed, so that, that they, you know, like Verizon, all the big companies. So here I am. So they asked me to do boss lift at Fort Dix. Um, and I, and I ended up being able to go and go on the, um, do, do an entire day worth of training, which was just amazing. Go up in the Blackhawks, go into the MRAPs and stuff. And, you know, and Verizon was there to hire and everybody else was there. And there I am, you know, this, this shrink. And when I came up, they, 
They said, I need to tell you that this is how you got here and this is the person and he wrote this amazing letter and thank you for taking care of one of our own. It was, it was just beautiful. It was just absolutely beautiful. So I'm still licensed in Oklahoma um, and I, I still have an off-the-grid place in Oklahoma. Um, it may come in handy one day. <laughs> uh, the light things are. Yeah, no. As you talked about your credentials, can you tell the listeners uh, what your credentials are? Yes, I have a master's in clinical psych and a master's in social work, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker. So that's a license I practice under. What are some of the techniques that you use when when dealing with first responders? Um, So so I'm far more psychodynamic, so I don't... um, so I don't uh, use any of the, and I know that you guys, you know, are, are big on uh, like EMDR. So, so the EMDR, what they have shown actually over the years, there's no empirical data. You guys are not going to love this. There's no empirical data that EMDR actually works, and this is going to go into a whole left hand side, which I I'm going to go to with you guys because this is so important. So it is the. Um, so the eye movement isn't key. What we do find is the desensitization. Um, reprocessing is is extremely helpful. So it's not uncommon that I would take my officers back to the locations that they had been involved in a critical incident and be able to reprocess it with them while on a scene and be able to, to go through it, which has really been um, rewarding. You know, I had one, one officer who had um, been shot three times, and we went back to the location. He said, you know, Steph, I've been here four different times, and I've never cried until I was with you. You know, and that's the relationship, you know, is that, that when you're with somebody who's safe and it's a very uh, different relationship because there's an emotional component with me when somebody's going over a story, you know, and, and I saw them at their worst. Nobody comes in at their best, you know. You guys don't see people at their best? Neither do I. You know, nobody's been like, yes, I've waited my whole life to have really good insurance so I can sit in a shrink's office and see how she's doing. <laughs> that is not happening. So, um so what? So so that is one of the things. Um, big on uh, you know self psychology, being able to um, to deal with past information. You know how did they cope? What skills do they have? Um, you know cognitive behavioral therapy, looking at some of the cognitive pieces. I don't think there's one specific um, modality. That's it. I, I think. And I think if you're just going to stay in your slice that brought that officer in, like I said, I go over my profile of a cop with every single person that walks in. And you would be shocked that either in the first session or the first three sessions, how many tell me that they have been sexually abused as kids. And then goes to a very different piece of this because if that person still has access to children, we have to notify. And... And they know that on some level, but don't forget, they've kept this a secret their whole lives. So that becomes a really huge therapeutic piece. However, I will tell you what every single person that has sat in my office, as soon as it is addressed and I say to them, so here are the numbers. These are not sensationalized. These are the research numbers. So for every one male victim that is molested outside the home, and males are typically molested outside the homes, females are typically molested inside, so they're normally molested not by family, that each male, that each perpetrator 
has on an average 358 different victims responsible for over 42,000 counts of abuse against those 358 victims. Okay, so um, a researcher by the name of Fuller did the first research and then Abel did the second. Uh, and the way that they got these numbers is that, I'm gonna say is either in Minnesota, or, um, I think it was in Minnesota that, uh, that the research was done, that um, they were able to waive from prosecution. They asked the attorney general because they could not get accurate numbers on, on molestation, is to waive from prosecution the, um, the individuals that they had molested. So it gave the, it gave the perpetrator the reason to make sure that they named, and they made it clear, if there is one person that comes forward that you didn't name, you're done. So they absolutely had um, motivation to make sure that every single person was named. Speed ahead many years later, I ended up dealing with a retired um, polygrapher from the FBI who is polygraphing um, for a chemical castration up in Buffalo at the time, it was a drug company that had hired him. And so I said to him, you know, here's, here's the numbers that I, you know, had been told. Um, is that accurate? And he goes, well, not, not, not always. And I was like, oh, I knew this sounded like a whole lot. He said, when it comes to priests, those numbers are over a thousand. And that's, you know, and so I'm like, well, the 358 is accurate. He said, yes. So, um, so when I give my, my patients that information, they took, they took this job to protect people, particularly children. There is not one of them that did not say, let's make the call. Because for me, I want to make the call with them in the room because it's the first time that it is empowering them. Because that is a level of helplessness that they have had since the day that occurred. And when a priest is the perpetrator, my guys have lost their childhood and their God. And that is devastating because when the whole world falls apart, most people will turn to a God. All right, Stephanie, I want to get into Copline. I want you to unpack it and tell the listener how it started, what it is, and the mission. So Copline is a hotline for police officers, active uh, or retired, and their families to be able to call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, to deal with anything from a bad day to a full-blown mental health crisis. So um, Copline is a not-for-profit. We take no state or federal funds. That's really important. The integrity of these lines was the only thing that mattered and still the only thing that matters um, to me and to anybody else that's part of Copline. We have over 140 uh, trained volunteers right now that are answering these lines for us. So there's always uh, <clears throat> two, uh, two retired police officers on the lines at, at all times that have been trained and vetted. The training is, um, is brutal, to be quite honest. Uh, Talk about it. So, um, so the way it works is that uh, you go online, you fill out a questionnaire. That questionnaire is relatively intrusive, um, and it goes just to me. Um, look over the questionnaire. Matter of fact, I have one. I got to call the person back, uh, but he said 
he filled it out. It was uh, pretty sparse. And, <laughs> and his last uh, his last uh, thing, you know, th- there's a question that says, you know, is there anything you want me to know about, you know, anything I should know that I didn't cover, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, I'm an open book, just ask. So I, I called him back to say that I didn't have time to, to speak to him, but I didn't want him to think I didn't get it. And I said, for somebody that's that's an open book, you did a really shitty job uh, answering the questions on the questionnaire. And there's just dead silence. And when I hung up, I thought to myself, well, that breaks him into what he's about to get himself into. Right. Um, but it's true. You know, it's like, you know, d- you know, don't pee on my leg and tell me it's raining. So, um, so once they get through and, and I, and, and it's a light lift, you know, it, it's me looking at, at different things that, um, one of the things that I look at it is, is have you been in therapy? Because if you haven't, then I'm going to ask questions about what you think of therapy, because if you think that it's bullshit or what have you, you know, that that's going to perpetuate a stigma that we don't want to perpetuate. <clears throat> So, um, so any biases is, is what I'm looking for. Any strong opinions? Um, you guys have opinions about everything as do I, but depending on how strong those opinions are, we need to look at those. Um, absolutely. Uh, one of the issues and is, is a strong faith in God and how that drives somebody. This is not a religious hotline. We've had callers that call up who, um, clergy ended up being drunk and hitting that officer and costing them their career. So if you've got somebody on the lines that believes that, you know, that that you need to talk to clergy and and that's going to be the referral or what have you, that's going to be an issue. So we need to, so we look at, we look at those different pieces. It has nothing to do with whether or not you believe in God. It's whether or not this is going to be a proper fit to be able to get on these lines. Um, whether or not you've had anybody in your life that has died by suicide and, and, um, and who that person was. And, and we ask it, it, we ask three different questions. Um, do you know anybody that has thought of suicide? You or anybody, anybody that has attempted and anybody that has completed, you know, so that those are, those are three very different pieces that, um, that get asked on the on the questionnaire. And so when I when I speak to them, critical incidents that you had been involved in, whether or not uh, you or anybody else had been charged, um, any internal affairs stuff, to really be able to see what somebody's been through because I think that, you know, as we talked about earlier, I, I think the, the best listeners are the ones that have um, a tremendous breadth and depth of experience. And that, you know, that comes from not having worked in Mayberry. Um, and none of my guys have worked in Mayberry, but the other part is if you're completely shut off to being able to talk about what you experienced, then that's not going to be a good fit either. Because what Copline is about, it is about feeling with your heart and not your head. If you cannot get in the hole with the person and sit and bear witness to their pain and share that pain, you are not getting on these lines. That caller, it took so much out of a caller to be able to dial those 10 numbers. And they've already spoken to 732 other people that have given them advice, judged them, and told them what to do. That is not why they are calling. And we are going to fail if that is what we do. So it's really difficult. Before I came in today, and, and you know, only about one and a half percent of our about 400 calls right now we get a month are suicidal calls. 
and um, and so there was a suicidal call this morning, and so I, I debriefed the volunteers um, afterwards, and um, and she said, you know, I've I've always been somebody who, you know, who wants wants to tell them that everything's going to be okay, kind of that cheerleader. And we have a briefing room that that we go into, and there's notes for me about not cheerleading. Um, and she said, just being able to sit in that hole with him and listen to his pain, to listen to him crying, and to not tell him that everything's going to be okay, because I don't know if everything's going to be okay. And it was just this beautiful conversation that she had with me, but that beautiful conversation was initiated with, with, with what she did with that caller. Um, so the reason why they are, and I still get people, even though it's like bolded on, uh, on the application, that, that they have to be a retired officer, is because um, we do not breach for, for things that sworn officers have to um, have to notify. So if a caller's engaged in illegal activity, domestic violence, and even if that caller is suicidal, we do not breach for suicide. Our guys are trained, they are trained damn well. It is not the call anybody wants, but the greatest fear is that you are having the worst day of your life and you are thinking of ending it, and that you finally reach out for help, and that now bit you in the ass, because that is the fear. We had a caller, and, and we only found out, obviously, through the caller. Um, and I've discussed this. It was in Texas. Don't know where. And um, the caller had called the Veterans Hotline. The Veterans Hotline, because he was suicidal, called the department. Um, and he lived in town, so he, he, the response was going to be his own. So, the, so his lieutenant shows up, and his lieutenant's a friend of his, and calls him on the phone and says, you know, hey, Bob whatever his name is, you know, look out the window, and we're here. And he's like, I fucking knew it. He said, no, 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 Bob, come look out the window. I'm not armed. I have a card I want to give you. And then I'm walking away. So Bob comes out. He hands him a cop line card, and he says, call them. They don't breach for suicide. And it's like, I love you, man. And that was it. And the reason why we know the story is because he obviously called cop line and told what had happened. So, you know, I, I knew when I set this up, I had, I had worked with cops for long enough. I knew that if an officer was willing to dial 10 numbers and they were suicidal, that they were ambivalent because you don't call if you're not. And so, you know, our lead trainer has a dual expertise. He was with the Los Angeles Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is the oldest hotline in the country, now run through Dee Dee Hirsch. Um, and they trained their hostage negotiators. LAPD's hostage negotiators have been training on hotlines for decades now. So, um, so he came from there, and then he's been with the Los Angeles uh, Behavioral Science Services Unit for the past 17 years. So Dr. Jay Nagdeman is our lead trainer. So... I knew that from 1963 to 2019, and I know there have been zero since that, I just don't know the call volume, um, that they had fielded over 7,500,000 suicidal calls, of which two people died by suicide on the lines. Do the math. So those, for those two people, I'm not, I'm not 
trying to belittle this. Um, that obviously that was statistically relevant for those two. However, the good of the nation has to outweigh the good of the few. You guys need to be taken care of. So I knew that we were not going to um, to be breaching for suicide. It is not mandatory. The mandatory breaches are um, are homicide. If you're going to kill somebody else. Um, child abuse and elder abuse. We have never had anybody that has ever given me any shit about those three, um, those three reasons to breach. So, um, so our volunteers are very much aware of this because if there is a conflict religiously for them, spiritually or anything else, then they, then they are not going to end up being part of of cop line and then they end up um going through a 40-hour training and i always say to them i go you know when you guys used to train and you used to go to trainings and they'd say all right it's going to start you know eight to four and after lunch they're like don't get into trouble just you know whatever. i'm like that's not us when we say it's from eight to five you'll be lucky if at five o'clock we're still not going and you're going to have homework and we can't afford to pay for you to come to training. So you actually also get to pay your own way to come to training and to make matters even sweeter for you, you might not pass. Stephanie, what's the dropout rate of people that show up to get trained and don't make it for you? Um, so the last class we started with, um, so there are 24 that were supposed to show up. We ended up with... Um, 14 that ended up there, we ended up vetting through, I think, 10. Yeah, and we just had somebody. So um, after they, so if they make it through the training, it doesn't mean that they make it on the lines. So you have a percentage that can go straight to the lines. Everybody gets a mentor, kind of like a field training officer. And that mentor will uh, will introduce themselves, will um, and will stay with them for the next six months, um, kind of help them get on the lines. We'll monitor their their calls. When I say monitor, it's after shifts, before shifts. There's no monitoring. There's no no way of of listening and what have you on on phone calls. You're on there alone. Um, so that the so the mentor will will see how it's going, um, see if any calls are emotionally charged. Um, we keep internal summaries. Um, we keep no phone number. So if you called in from a 214 area code, it will say, you know, 214, if you gave the name Bob, um, Bob, there's no last name. And then it will give um, a snippet that will say, uh, Bob's struggling with relationship issues. Um, his wife left him with a couple of kids. Um, and that's, you know, and it's just kind of that. So if Bob calls again, um, and then who we referred, if we referred anybody or what have you. Never named the department, mm -hmm. none of that. Um, really, really mindful of it. It really is just for internal reasons. Um, and, and we found that to be helpful. Well, I, I think it's so important that listeners get to hear how much effort goes into screening <laughs> to make sure that you have the right person yeah. on the other end of that call. Because yeah. the wrong person could make it worse. So oh, I, I, I absolutely love Love hearing that there's that much work that goes into making sure the right people are on the other side of that line. Um, our, our greatest expense and, um, and time is involved in trainings and the follow-up, you know, with them, like that mentorship program. I mean, and then the mentors were now setting up a train-the-trainer um, 
because they need to be properly trained. They have to meet certain criteria. We ask for two shifts a month, which is 16 hours a month, so that the mentors have to also be, you know, staying with the, the minimum requirements. I mean, there, there is a whole lot that goes to it. You know, I'm not so sure I thought about any of this. Like, this seemed like a really great idea. Like, where there's, like, only, like, three of us. But, I, you know, all of a sudden, this is very big. <laughs> um, but, but, but amazing, because it's not just me. You mm-hmm. know, I, I, am, I am truly just a very, very small cog in a wheel. There are so many of us that, that are making Copline what it is. And Dallas, um, which I do want to tell you, has an incredibly special place for me having to do with with copline the pulse shooting was in june of 2016 so copline um rang into my office because i so 1-800-COPLINE rang into my office in freehold it was unadvertised and it was founded in 2005 so we've been around for a while and so I always, you know, I waited for that ideal time, kind of like you, you think about when you're going to have kids, that you wait for that ideal time to have them, that you're financially set, that you're vocationally set, and everything else. And then you realize we'd have a zero population. So Copline was kind of like, like that for me. I was waiting for the perfect time. I needed finances. I needed to be able to, to do this. And then came the pulse shooting. And I thought, this is unbelievable. Like, we got to do something. So I call up, I'm going to throw AT&T under the bus. So I call up AT&T, who was housing the 800 number. And I'm like, I need to get this off of, of my office. And I had a separate cell phone that I had gotten um, that I was going to do. And it was three weeks later. So it was July 7th. And, uh, and I was in session that day. And I see a Dallas number come up. And it just shows Dallas. That's all it showed. I knew what was going on. And so I answered it, and it was a female, I assume it was an officer, that called, and she was screaming, and she was crying, and she said, they are killing my brothers and sisters. I beg of you. You have got to do something. They are killing my brothers and sisters. And I said to her, I feel absolutely helpless right now. And it was just, it was, it was, the reality that I had to shit or get off the pot. And now you've got a backstory of how, how I had connected first to Dallas with two of your guys. And, and now I decided that I was going to go for the CEO of AT&T and I was going to start from the top and work my way down. And within sight of 24 hours, they pulled that line, and it rang on a separate cell phone, hence known as the cop line phone to my poor children, who for their, um, their entire childhood into young adulthood um, had a mom that carried around two cell phones. Because we didn't have the money. I mean, I literally, every 12 hours, matter of fact, I just, uh, I just got a picture of, I used to have a calendar. That I, that I would um, that I would copy every month and then I would send it out through email to the different volunteers to have them fill in where they were going to be and every 12 hours I would literally store 72 and then put in the phone number of who was getting it and then 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 undo it 12 hours later and then do it to the next person 12 hours I had changed that phone in hospitals 
while my dad was dying. I had changed it on vacations that I was pretending to have a vacation. I changed it at rodeos. No matter where I was in the world, I lived on a 12-hour cycle. And then, you know, as time went on, obviously, we, we have a better phone system and, and what have you. But, um, but that day, July 7th, changed the trajectory of my life forever and of every officer in the United States and in 2019 Canada. Um, and I had, um, and I remember I had met a, a assistant chief out in San Diego, uh, Sarah Crichton, who headed up her wellness unit. And uh, she called me up and she said, I'm retiring in February. You need to, um, to get a training going. Uh, okay. So I flew out there. I don't think I, I don't think my ass was in a seat when she's already like, who's the guy that, uh, who's that doctor that, that you're going to be working with? So I had Dr. Nagdeman on the phone. I'm like, Jay, you know, we, we need to do this. You know, what can we do? And Sarah said, we'll take care of it. I'll, I'll find everything that we need. And so April of, uh, of, of 2017 was our first cop line training. And up until then, I, um, I answered the phones uh, most of the time myself. And, uh, and a woman by the name of Diane Wright, who was a retired Fort Worth police officer, had started her wellness unit. And, um, and Diane answered them with me. And she, uh, and I used to call her mama. I was very, very close to her. I currently have her rat terrier because after she died, the only thing she loved was this little dog and nobody wanted to adopt the dog. And these nasty people that were taking care of it said that they were going to put it into a no-kill shelter. So I flew out to Arizona and, uh, and got little Misa. And uh, yeah, no, if, uh, if my husband was here, so would the dog be because we are her emotional support humans. <laughs> she can go nowhere. Most anxious dog, pain in the ass. You talked about Teen Line and uh, Dr. Elaine Leader previously. Yes. How influential was Teen Line for Cop Line and how influential was Dr. Elaine Leader for you? So, um, so clearly Teen Line um, was, I, I don't know if I would have thought of, of Cop Line if I didn't have Teen Line in my life. I, I really don't. I, you know, I do believe that we are always the sum total of all of our experiences and that when we look back, like I always think, why did I have to go through and then I could name it? I understand why Teen Line was in my life and I understand why Elaine was. So, um, so the answer is incredibly influential on what cop line is. Uh, and, and those same active listening skills. I mean, Elaine sent me the manual. I had to pay $250 for it, but she sent me the manual for, uh, for teen line, which was always the foundation. Of course, you know, uh, Jay, Dr. Nagman had always, you know, had trains for, for years. So everybody was on the same page with that. And then over the years, Elaine was always the person that I would call. So here's, here's a, so here's an, an interesting story that, that truly created a cop line. So Elaine told me, so I, um, so my first master's in clinical psych, I had gotten out in California, moved to New Jersey. New Jersey now isn't licensing in any other ma master's program except social work. 
in case you guys haven't figured out, the um, the perception of social workers would be probably the furthest thing from what you'd ever put me as. So is everybody here, by the way? Nobody can see it. Everybody's shaking their heads that's in this room. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, I end up in, in Jersey. They're not licensing. I have two choices. I'm either going to get... Um, I'm either got to get a second master's or I'm going to go for my PhD. My PhD is going to take five years and I'm probably going to be eating goddamn dog food by then. Or I can rip through a second master's that I don't want in probably 18 months and figure out how to keep myself afloat. So, and I hate school. End up being diagnosed dyslexic at age 25. Like, this is not my thing. Clearly, totally not my thing. But I have no choice. So, um, so while I'm getting my master's in social work. <laughs> so one of my professors asked me to stay late after class. So I stay late and she says to me, I just want you to know, you are going to make a horrendous social worker. And I said to her, nobody has ever said anything that is nicer to me than that. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, so if you look at my transcripts, you'll know which professor <laughs> had uh, I had that that exchange with. So, um, so I was taking a policy class and one of the things that I had to do was I had to meet with a assembly person and, um, and come up with a policy. So I wanted to legislate. So I legislated for a hotline for police officers that would be answered by retired police officers. So I wrote the legislation and in 1999, that piece of legislation, and, and I ended up testifying time and time again in New Jersey um, for that. So that piece of legislation passed as well as another piece of legislation for uh, mandatory debriefings. Actually, um, they killed the mandatory. They made it permissive because state, because of its mandated, uh, state mandates state pay, so they weren't gonna do that. So that, you know, so we have a worthless bill that says it's permissive, like we need a goddamn permission to be able to do debriefings, but anyway, we, we can paper anything to death in New Jersey. Um, so, so legislation passes, um, and Elaine says to me during this time, she says, you need to trademark. She said, the only thing I did wrong, and Elaine never said that she did anything wrong. She said, the only thing, matter of fact, that came out when I did her, um, at her celebration of life, people were shocked that Elaine had ever said that she had done anything wrong. That the only thing she had done wrong is that she did not trade work, uh, trademark Teen Line Cares for, uh, for Teen Line. She said, you need to trademark. So, dad's an attorney. Call him up. I'm like, dad, we need to, to trademark. It wasn't cop. It wasn't a uh, cop line. It was a, a, another hotline in New Jersey. So, um, which I had come up with. And so, uh, so I trademarked it. Everything. And, and uh, the assemblywoman had called up and said, the only person that understands legislative intent is Stephanie Samuels. She wrote the legislation. You need to hire her. So I graduate with my master's. I am hired for legislative intent. And so all that money that I paid for my education that I owed was literally able to be paid for, which was amazing by, by this because I was hired. I was you know, still seeing my own patients at the time. And, um, and it was probably about a year. So the attorney says to me, listen, you now have to notify them because you have to police your mark. So you need to notify the state that you own the trademark. Hmm. So I do that. 
And I don't know how soon it was after that that in my office. Gentleman looks at me and says, you've just been served. State of New Jersey versus Stephanie Samuels for the trademark. Stephanie had a two-year-old at the time. Stephanie's a working woman. So anyway, spoke to a law firm. And uh, you know, my dad was still alive at the time, my brother. And, and so you know, everybody's you know, figuring out what to do. And so we go along for a, a little while. You know, the, the state you know, feels, you know, Stephanie Sanders is this fucking scum. She's doing this for money, blah, blah, blah. Nobody knew me. And I had no connections, you know. It's, anyway, um, so a decision was made that um, they owed me money for, for the work I had done and, they, and, and the trademarks. Um, and the attorney said the following. We've been able to do this hourly, but now we need a $50,000 retainer because we're going up against the state of New Jersey and they have hired outside counsel, so they're concerned. So I promise you for the $50,000, we're not getting out the door. They are going to paper us to death. You need to make a decision. I was horrified. This is 10 years of my life I tried to get this legislation through. I was like, all right. Um, so they said, name your price. I said, name my price? I said, I don't have a price. <laughs> I said, I'm out probably $5,000 for, for money they owe me for the work that I've done. And $2,500 each for the trademarks. There's two trademarks. It's $10,000. He said, you understand that the state of New Jersey has money. I said, you understand that I have integrity and that I never did this for a dime, and that at some point in time, somebody's gonna pull this fucking lawsuit, and they're gonna be like, oh, look at that, she got 100 grand, that's why she did it. I'm like, $10,000 pays what's owed. And the assemblywoman wrote a letter that stated that this legislation had always been called cop to cop, and that Stephanie had always, you know, it had always been known as that. So it is why the state of New Jersey was willing to do anything. So then I said to the attorney, I said, the only thing that I will not agree to is a do not compete clause. And he said, okay. And then the attorney said, I'll make a deal with you. If you choose to do this, we will represent you in the future for a hotline for police. To this day, that law firm represents Copline. And you know what? It was one of the most painful parts of my life. Still to this day, it is painful because the person that took it over has taken all the credit for it. Um, I have listened, I have watched. And it has taken me 20 some odd years to now turn around and to, um, to have New Jersey embrace me. 49 other states in Canada were incredible, except not my own state. That's, that's a pain that I wouldn't wish on anybody. But the good of the many had always outweighed the good of the few. 
should cop to cop, should I have stayed with them? Should it have only been in New Jersey? They took all the government money. It was based on, on forfeiture money. There was, there was a built-in in financial piece. We would not have what we have today with Copline because I don't believe that I would have continued the fight that I have fought with the integrity that I have fought it with and an unyielding belief of what will work. And, um, and that, is, that is truly Copline today. And you better believe the first fucking thing I did was trademark Copline. <laughs> so, so Stephanie Samuels owns the trademark. And so our, our pro bono attorneys do not do pro bono work for anything having to do with the trademark because I own it. That's not a Copline thing. Um, so I own both the name and, uh, and, the, and the logo itself. So that's how Copline is. And, and it has given me the ability, because I can't tell you how many times, that people will misuse Copline or say that they partner. You'll never see that an organization partners with Copline. Partners are bed buddies. I don't care who you slept with. I'm just not going to be part of who you slept with. And if you go down, you're not taking me with you. If I fuck up, I'm going down. I will crash and burn on my own, but not because I am affiliated with somebody else and what they did. You mentioned the logo. Yes. Can you talk about the logo and the significance of the colors? Yeah, you know. So uh, so the logo itself obviously is you know pretty self-explanatory. The the badge that's, that's in the middle, I'm actually looking at Dustin. Um, it is made up of a sheriff's badge. It is made up of a um, police badge. And it is also, um, we incorporate the Canadian, uh, one of the Canadian badges as well. So that's why um, that, that's there for the O. And, uh, and having been a Bruin, I decided that um, I thought the, col- the colors uh, gold and blue were, were pretty cool. Um, and we all do know that Troy Aikman, uh, after Oklahoma, went to UCLA didn't finish college, ended up going pro, promised his parents that he would go back and get his education and finish UCLA, which he ended up doing not that long ago. So uh, so once again, we're tied into Dallas. <laughs> yeah, we've heard of Troy Aikman around here. <laughs> so the motto, do it right, not fast, what does that mean to you? Oh, um, that, that was my journey, that I was going to do it right, not fast that I wasn't just going to throw some shit up there for you guys. I've watched so many programs for law enforcement come and go, and, and truly with, with, I think, good intentions. But you guys deserve the best that I had. You guys deserve the best that anybody has. And so if it was going to take me 10 years, which it took, you know, took damn near 10 years to get that phone off of my, <laughs> of, uh, my office line, but I was going to make sure that whatever I put out there was going to be sustained, you know, and, and the birth of anything is difficult. And although I don't think it was premature, I don't think those lungs were fully, uh, were fully functioning when, when I took it off of, of my office line. But I'm also a good mom. I was going to sustain life. You guys had made sure that my life was sustained. I owed that to each one of you. Um, and then watching it grow, you know, knowing that, God forbid, if something happens to me tomorrow, Copline will survive. 
I, I have raised a toddler right now that is is doing everything it needs to do to continue to grow into a nasty adolescent. <laughs> we'll talk about the growth of the board and how key that was. <clears throat> so I think with you know when you when you develop a board and you figure out you know who is it that you want. So you start off with with your lifelong friends. <laughs> um, and you always wish that you had that lifelong friend that had the family that had the foundation or trust money. Um, unfortunately, I didn't. Um, that would have made it, I think, easier. So um, so my board, the person that's been on the board with me since the beginning is um, is Meg Shaw. Meg's our treasurer. So here's another, uh, here's another one of those great deals. So I met Meg when I, um, when I was in my early 20s. Um, I dated a friend of hers who was a California Highway Patrol officer. Also one of the reasons why I knew how um, fucked up you guys were. So, uh, <laughs> so Meg, Meg and I became really close. I obviously didn't end up uh, staying with him, but Meg was getting her degree from Cal State Northridge, and she was going for, um, for accounting. So Meg said, you know... I really think that you should start a not-for-profit. And when you do, if I pass the CPA exam, I, I, will, I will do all of the accounting for you. I'm like, I was like 21. I'm like, great. That sounds like a great idea. We're going to do that. So obviously, you know, over time, and I stayed close to Meg, and I'm like, hey, Meg, I just created Copline. And so, you know, from, from the time I was going to create this, you know, I knew that, that I needed you know, her to be part of it. So Meg's been on the board since day one. Um, and then I've had, um, I've had other individuals, but this board has been pretty sound um, for quite some time now. Um, Andrew Hirschman um, has earned his place on the board. His dad was, uh, was one of those people that said, um, our firm will represent you pro bono for, for the rest of your life for Copline. Um, and Andrew's involved, and we do a midnight run for the call. Shout out for that. Um, that's coming up New Year's Eve. We do it, uh, starts at, at midnight when the ball drops. Uh, we are out on Point Pleasant Beach in New Jersey. However, it's done virtually throughout the country. It's our biggest fundraiser, um, and it is um, probably one of my stupidest things that I've ever done because every New Year's Eve I'm out there, and it's goddamn cold. Um, I needed to do that when I lived in California, not New Jersey. Um, but, but really rewarding. The thing that, um, that I love that means the most to me is that on the back of a shirt that, that if you get it in by a certain date, that each shirt is personalized. And so that a person's name that, that um, passed away is on each shirt. And we don't care how they died. The motto is um, as long as they wore the badge with honor. So we always say, you know, in their life we had their backs. Tonight they have ours. And uh, so that's been, um, that's been really wonderful to, to watch that grow. Um, retired Captain Jim Alvarez is vice president. Um, he's retired captain out of LAPD. Solid, solid man. Um, the only time I think he's ever gotten in trouble is when he was hanging out with us. Uh, and then we've got uh, Francis Graff up in Canada. He's in BC. He was uh, forensics, uh, worked forensics in uh, in law enforcement for over a decade. So he is our IT person. He really is is the magic behind so much. You know, I, I, our lines go down. Anything happens, you know, 24 hours a day. 
that's what he does. I mean, it's just, and these are all volunteers, you know, me, you know, a call comes in and, and it's an emotionally charged call. I'll debrief no matter what time. It's just, I, th- these are servants' hearts at their best. Um, John Sariga is with TMPA. John is just an amazing, amazing man. Um, TMPA has been, I cannot tell you the support that they have given Copline. Um, Kevin Lawrence, I cannot say enough good things about that man and, and how he has supported our mission, what he does. So John's on, uh, John's on our board. Uh, Chris White, who owns a few companies. He is, he owns Roll Call. He owns Summit, um, and, uh, and one other, another, uh, sent me an email at whatever time at night, he tells a story. It's a great story. Um, and he's like, you know, I'd love to talk to Stephanie Samuels one day. And I'm like, it's me. Are you free now? <laughs> it's like 11 o'clock at night. He's like, uh, yeah. A- and just, um, he runs our, uh, the three gun shoot for us, uh, which always raises at least enough money to do one of the trainings. So, uh, he's our newest board member. Let's see who else is on there. Um, Emily Eng, who seconds is my daughter. So she is the secretary. My kids believe that they're indentured servants. My one daughter just got out of the army. She says that she went into the army so she could get away from, uh, from being an indentured servant. But God bless her truly for serving. Um, what, what an amazing young woman. And so she's back doing some work with, with Copline. Um, and I'm sure I am forgetting. Who else am I forgetting, guys? um but but the board has um this board has been around now for an extended period of time um and they are my backbone they are the ones that when i'm going to do something stupid so you will not see me at conferences because this so i'm circling my mouth everybody this does not go well in the public arena so I am not the face of Copline and the mouth of Copline when, when they go out to, you know, IACP or whatever conferences. It's just best that I, I don't do that. So um, so you come on here. So I come then, on here. here. Yeah, exactly. I want to get into uh, an article I read uh, just from November 2023. PTSD versus TBI and, and the impacts on... Uh, mental health actually i you know i run the the dallas pd wellness unit newsletter we put out every seven weeks and i'm going to be adding this article to the to the next newsletter uh hopefully by the end of this month we're recording in december uh can you talk about that uh about that article yeah totally honored uh, that 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 you're doing that and grateful um so one of the things that has frustrated all of us is the, is the suicide rates. Is it just sit back and you think to yourself, what the fuck are we missing? That we cannot throw up another blue this, first responder that, reach out for help, call this number, push this button, do this, come and see us, we're confidential with this, with that. We, we, we can't. It, it's just, you know. So what is missing? So it was probably about a year ago um, that I was starting to look at other pieces. And, and, you know, and I don't quite remember how all of this fit. I went to high school with a, um, with a woman who became a neurosurgeon 
who um, deals with domestic violence and um, an intimate partner violence that, that looks at concussions. I had set up the LEADER program. I was a co-founder of that over at McLean Hospital. So it's Harvard Psychiatric. And so one of my patients was, um, he's medication um, resistant. I have many of my patients that have been medication resistant. And their frustration is incredible. But one of them is so explosive. And I couldn't figure out like why he is literally losing his shit. So he played football throughout his, um, his childhood, ended up going to college on a football scholarship. Still, two and two is not equaling four for me, by the way. This was not my aha moment. In case you thought that I had a brilliant moment, I did not. But I had the brilliant moment of saying, I've sent you to a psychiatrist. You're, you're medication compliant, but you're medication resistant. Nothing is stopping. This is affecting your kids. This is affecting your wife. This is a disaster. So I call up um, the head clinician up there, Dr. Beth Murphy, and I say, I'm sending up one of my patients. I need, I need as good of an evaluation because I think I'm missing something. Here's what's going on. I need, I need him to see the best. So he goes up to, uh, to Boston, sees her in her private practice, and one of the diagnoses of uh, intermittent explosive disorder, IED, different IED. So, but same effects, I'm convinced, because it's blowing up the house. Um, so she requests a recent MRI on him and says, in all likelihood, nothing's showing. I said, okay, what are you looking for? She said, I'm looking for frontal lobe. I said, all right. I said, well, you know, talked about other scans or whatever. She said, there's no way that that insurance will cover it. You know, you're talking about spec scans. You're talking about, um, talking about fMRIs, uh, that the lift just gets heavier. So, um, so she said, but we end up diagnosing off of symptoms. I said, okay. So anyway... That begins this other world for me. And then I started um, spending more time with, um, with Dr. Edie Zussman, with a, with, a, um, with a neurosurgeon, and trying to piece these things together. And the more I was looking at her describing what concussions do, and I'm like, you just described PTSD irritability, outbursts of anger, difficulty concentrating, difficulty with sleep. I'm like, shit. And then, and then depression and anxiety. If you don't have those three diagnoses or one of those three diagnoses and you're a first responder, you're not in my practice. So I had been sworn into countless courtrooms as a subject matter expert, and yet I missed this. And people, you know, people are like, you're really hard on yourself and stuff. I am hard on myself. It doesn't make a difference. I fucking missed it. I've been treating cops for 35 years. You want to sugarcoat it with another goddamn word, sugarcoat it. I'm not a big sugarcoater. It was missed. It was missed for my goddamn education that I had to go through two fucking master's degrees. Freud had been dead for more than eight years, for God's sakes. I didn't need to relearn anything about that. I needed to learn about what happens to the goddamn brain. And what the overlap is, because when you're sitting in my office, 
I need to know the real questions to ask you. I need to be able to say to you, Joe, tell me about your childhood. Because here's the profile of a cop. And you, you know, and then you, you talk about your childhood, your real childhood. Not your fucking pretend childhood that you've learned throughout your years to sugarcoat and to talk about. Because every time somebody knocked you on the side of the head, it counted. Every trip, every fall. And then you go on and you learn that you know, they played soccer, rugby, football. And it keeps going. And I say to them, how many concussions have you had? And what do you think the answer is? I've never had a concussion. Okay. How many times did you get your bell rung? Oh, shit. Countless. Well, every time you got your goddamn bell rung, you had a concussion. Except we didn't know it. So the running joke is that we literally are a bunch of adults that have been shaking off concussions since we were three. And our parents are like, just shake it off. So, okay. But what, what I've learned is that the brain keeps score. A silent, invisible score. And a glass continues to get fuller and fuller and fuller and fuller. And it's not that, that loss of consciousness knockout that sends you over the edge. It's the one fucking drop. The one drop. It's the five mile an hour fender bender that just jars you, that puts that water over the edge. And what happens to water when it seeps and it gets behind your walls and stuff? It's black mold. It'll kill you, but you'll never see it. So now starting to understand and piece this together. So now I thought, okay, well, so now I'm asking, so now I come up with this, this, this head injury intake in private practice. And I am mortified, mortified. 87% of my patients, 87%, I have a huge private practice. I'm gone after by insurance companies. They hate me because I keep them in my practice for a while. I see them as often as they need to be seen. Not that insurance wants me to, needs to be seen. And now I realize that my Fab Five, I have five people that I talk to pretty much five to seven days a week. It's a lot are probably living with the effects from all of this. CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, cannot, I cannot say this enough, CTE cannot be diagnosed in the living, period. It cannot be a confirmed diagnosis. However, the symptoms of it, we know. So people are like, well, we, we need to see it on a scan. So I started thinking to myself, all right, so now, now, now I started doing research with like the big boys, the ones that have been looking at the, the NFL for the past you know, 17, 18 years, Dr. Cantu, Dr. Dan Severe, um, all you know, out, of, out of Boston. Boston on February 28th of 2023 this year, um, because I have that type of personality that, uh, that just, I'm like a dog with a bone, that they finally changed their inclusion category to include law enforcement enforcement and other first responders. And what that means is that any officer that, that dies can have their brain donated and completely paid for by the Unite Brain Bank, period. It's not just the suicides, but any 
any officer. You know, when we look at um, Frank Gifford, who just passed not that long ago, Frank lived till his 80s. Frank was living with CTE. You know, he they donated their brain. They, um, I just watched the movie the other day of a requiem of a running back, which was, I think they did it in uh, 2017. So, um, so being able to understand symptoms and treating symptoms because there's help. And when we had border patrol, I want to say this past year, we had, we had uh, several border patrols that died by suicide. And one of them literally had gotten off of an ATV and ended up taking his life. So I found out that he had been involved in several other ATV accidents in the recent past. So there is an officer um, by the name of Jeffrey Smith. Aaron is his widow. Jeff was um, with Metro Police Department and on January 6th went into the Capitol. They called in for mutual aid and Jeff went in with a body cam. So while he was inside, he ended up suffering a concussion with a loss of consciousness that was seen, several flashbangs. And then when he was outside, there is a pole that comes in that hits him square in the head. Okay. Gets off of work on the 9th, um, I'm sorry, on the 6th. He doesn't go back until the 15th, except on his way to work, he took his life. Can't be PTSD. You need 30 days for a proper diagnosis. That's what the DSM-5 says, okay? However, everybody's looking at this saying, it's got to be what he experienced inside. You know, it was a traumatic day, blah, blah, blah. Ultra, except for the fact he went to medical as instructed and when he died he had a skull fracture and what we know is factor multiple when it comes to concussions cannot be worse that your brain literally cannot function when it has been jarred that soon. So, so I ended up speaking with Aaron with his wife and she said to me, she knew I was lecturing and, you know, I spoke to her about this and I'm, I'm very, very protective of that. You know, I don't believe in using people, you know, it's, it's just, it's never been, been something I'm comfortable with, with you feel like you are exploiting somebody and, and their, their horrors. I'm very, um, very concerned with that and told her what I was doing and she said people need to understand that Jeff didn't die because of a psychological issue Jeff died because of of these concussions of of that he couldn't navigate what was going on that his personality changed that this was a different man so now I've got my 87 percent of my practice that clearly has been in a psychiatrist's office getting medication, except that the psychiatrist also has never asked about any history with head trauma. They've never asked about contact sports. So what do we know about memory? So concentration, so PTSD, we know that memory is shit, we know concentration is off, we know all of that. So 
so we so psychiatrists will medicate them with the drugs that they think would be for PTSD, your Zoloft, your, your Lexapro. Those are the most common that I've that I've seen. But what happens if the memory is from a neurological problem and you have the tau protein that's building up? Tau protein is what causes CTE. It is what Alzheimer's is. It is the tau protein, but in a different part of the brain. So now we've got tau for the NFL players, but we're seeing it in kids. We're seeing it in 18-year-old kids. New York Times just came out with a devastating article. Um, and I'm going to be uh, lecturing on Wednesday. And, and this kid's, um, he, he asked his parents, he made a video before he died, before he shot himself, and he asked his parents to please donate his brain. Um, and he said goodbye, and his parents did, and they found, um, they found the, the tau protein. They, they found um, advanced CTE in an 18-year-old. So, so being able to, to have psychiatrists, individuals that understand that, hey, if I've got this background, then and nothing's working medication wise maybe we need to look at aricepts the drugs that are being used for memory because we've got to slow this down we've got to get them the right meds we need to do cognitive therapy we need to do ocular therapy we need to do vestibular therapy we need to do the right damn therapies and then you know what all the other shit is going to start dissipating because the brain's going to be able to figure things out because because they're going to be able to to fire differently but if you've got a damaged frontal lobe so i use this example so a person is jogging you jog for you know for stress relief and you're not paying attention and a car backs out of the driveway and you get hit by the car and you end up, you know, you don't end up knocking yourself out, but you, your bell gets rung. You know, your, your, your neck muscles, you're able to sustain it. You don't hit your head, but, but your brain gets jarred. All right, so you go out to run again, fight, flight, or, uh, or freeze. So now you get to the driveway. And thank God we've got that system that's working. We're like, oh, shit, you know, last time I was running here, I almost got killed. And so a intact frontal lobe, intact frontal lobe goes okay, that's true, but there's no car in the driveway or the car in the driveway has no lights on in the back. There's nobody in the vehicle and there's nobody on the street. Okay, carry on and you keep jogging. However, if you don't have a intact frontal lobe, that anxiety and that fear, you're not navigating it well. So now you end up in my office, my pre-understanding office, and I say, oh, shit, it sucks. So, so now what are you doing for a stress release? And the person says, nothing. I loved running. I don't enjoy running on a treadmill because we go through that. You know, we go through all the different options. And then I say to them, well, you know, how close are you to like a high school? Do you think you could run at a high school track? Like I have all these other options. I'm thinking I'm helping. I need to figure out that this person probably has a goddamn head injury and that they need to be treated differently. And so I need to refer to the proper culturally competent because not all neurologists are created equal, just like not all cop shrinks or shrinks are created equal. 
so that they will do the proper evaluation and get them to the proper medical help so that they can get back to their life. So, you know, for, for most of our audience, you know, CSI was big, right? Everybody kind of saw CSI Miami. And you had Horatio or whatever his name was. So, uh, who in an hour could solve any crime, which is truly amazing, but they solved it with what? DNA. So what, what the cops, you know, years ago were incredibly frustrated because they were not getting convictions in courts. So they hence dubbed it, and you can look it up, the CSI effect. Because if you didn't have DNA, you couldn't get the conviction. Well, y- you know what? Y- you can't always get DNA off of a goddamn sneaker with, you know, somebody that licked it. I mean, it, it's just, it's not practical. So, but what you had was really good police work, right? You had people that, that collected, you know, collected evidence, that, that, that the facts were all there, and it was presented to the jury, right? but they didn't have DNA. It's the same damn thing with head injuries. And we need to get this message across, is if we know the person has been involved in contact sports from the time they were young, if they were, if they were abused, if they have had multiple concussions, they come on the job, prior military, low-level blasts. We certainly know a lot about low-level blasts right now. And then, you know, they, they get onto the, because, you know, frontal lobes are really kind of fun, so that impulsivity. So you'll find that, that these are your SWAT members. These are your, your guys that are out there in these really cool, you know, positions where they are always the first ones through the door. They're your breachers. They're your operators. These are, these are the guys. Except we keep exposing them to more and more of these low-level blasts, and we don't take care of them. We give everybody psychological fitnesses for duty. Please don't send anybody for a, for a, a fitness for duty. Send them for a cognitive, for a neuropsych testing after they're hired. <laughs> And then let's make sure that their brain health continues because we can get them help. And you know what happens when we get them help? We see a decrease in divorce. We see happier officers. We see less acting out behaviors. We see less early retirements. Like it starts to make sense. And for us, we can decrease the damn suicide rates because we're understanding what is going on and the impulsivity that is part of what suicide is about. It finally makes sense. And when I am able to lecture, and again, I'm not a brain person. When I lecture, I cannot tell you how many people come up to me afterwards, emotional, and thank me. And thank me for finally making sense. Because these are not two different fields. So, I, I, so Stephanie doesn't refer to the neurologist and then I stay on the, the right-hand side and the neurologist on the left. It's Stephanie that talks to the neurologist about the patient and says, okay, so what I'm seeing is the, the acting out behavior, the impulsivity. How can I deal with this and how can you deal with it? What needs to be done? Because this is what has to happen. We are in this together. It is not two separate fields. So we know that the symptoms for traumatic stress 
manifest the same as the symptoms for psychological or physiological damage, concussions right. you're talking about. And it's not going to show up on an MRI. Right. Spec scan, however, can show us dysfunctions within the brain and operational mechanisms. Have you had any of your patients do any spec scanning? And then have you been able to use that to help with your counseling or therapies? So I have not been able to get spec scans with my own patients. I have been able to address the importance of spec scans, but what ends up being addressed no matter what is that if we're seeing it in my office, if we're seeing it in their homes and we're seeing it at their jobs, then we don't need to necessarily have that spec scan to know what we know. Okay. Yeah. Spec scans would be great, but it's still not, again, CTE can't be seen. But but what all these scans are going to do is just show us it's that DNA. They're going to show us what we're already seeing. It's not going to change how we treat them, but it will make people feel better to say, okay, well, here it is, and we can point to something. But the bottom line is we need to treat according to their history and an accurate history and then what we are seeing. Um, and that includes, you know, we know that ALS now is is part of this. We know that Parkinson's is Alzheimer's, part of this. dementia. All of it. Yeah. So, you know, being able to try and deal with this at a much earlier stage. So if I've just diagnosed you with PTSD and a spouse is bitching about memory or what have you, we now need to, to get this into a different arena because I want to be able to slow down potentially your your memory deficits and and as important i need to be able to educate your family about this and that's been one of the biggest pieces with spouses um with with loved ones that are living with cte is if i would have known that that this existed i could have i could have figured out a different way because when you believe the person's doing it and is in control of what they're doing it's very different than to say they didn't, they, neurologically they couldn't, they were broken. That is a very different thing. And I'll tell you who's doing an outstanding job, Concussion Legacy Foundation. Um, they now have, so you can go on, and this is how Copline, so Copline now trains um, in, in asking questions of callers that are struggling, you know, PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, mood dysregulation, those pieces are like those, those trigger words that say, I need to ask about, about playing, playing contact sports because what we've seen with contact sports is that you might not have played contact sports after you were out of high school, except if you ended up with the tell, tell protein doesn't go away, that it literally is degenerative over a lifetime. So that we're seeing it in older individuals, the effects, because the degeneration has continued throughout their lifetime. And then depending on what has occurred during those years has also added to it. But being able to, um, to help callers that are retired, that are struggling, not uncommon to get a third party call from a spouse or a child, you know, adult child, that's questioning about mom or dad and being able to now ask these questions 
and Concussion Legacy Foundation is working with CopLime and all um, law enforcement first responders. They're setting up a separate website just for law enforcement and first responders that if you go on um, Concussion Legacy Foundation helpline, you literally, and this is what I do now with my patients, is I'll fill out a form depending on where they are um, to get to get therapists that they have vetted, neurologists, appropriate um, medical providers so that we can now get our callers the proper help throughout the United States. They have just been solid. So, that you know, that's the other piece. We can't do this without them. Stephanie, we, we presented together, uh, I think, eight months now. And that's the first time I, I heard your presentation about this topic. Um, and part of the reason I'm, I'm excited to be here and, and be able to join in this conversation was because of how much it helped me personally. Um, so to, to give you a background, you know, I played football, played hockey. I had more concussions as a child than more than half the people I know. Um, then I joined the Marine Corps and ended up, you know, jump school, uh, explosive breacher on a doing the SRT stuff, um, injuries downrange where I actually did have a skull fracture at one point, um, and received little to no uh, treatment at the time. It was basically like as soon as the symptoms of the the head injury are over, get back to work. Um, so years go by, I get diagnosed with PTSD um, while on active duty, re- received uh, care and treatment, felt like everything was going fine. But even when everything was fine, it felt like I was walking on a tightrope. And that I could step to the left and step to the right, and now I'm off the tightrope. So my entire life was a balancing act of trying to maintain that tightrope. And after hearing that presentation and, and talking with you about it in detail, I went and started getting treatment for the PTS or for the uh, po- post-traumatic uh, head injury, and um, it has changed things astronomically. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm seeing a, a doctor by the name of uh, Dr. Matthew Talley, um, and he is a functional neurologist, and it has changed my life. And I just really wanted to share that with you. Um, it went from a tightrope now to a sidewalk, which is much more manageable. So I couldn't figure out why medicines only did so much. Um, I couldn't figure out why um, changes weren't taking place in my life. I'd already been through one marriage, already had alcoholism, other issues, which is part of why I got involved in peer support is because not only issues that I had dealt with, but also having, you know, my brother's fellow Marines take their own lives with similar issues. Um, so I, w- I was thrilled when I got the invite by Joe to be able to join you guys today, just solely to be able to, to thank you uh, publicly for being able to present with you and hear that because it meant a lot to me so much so that I went to, to get additional help. Um, and it's, it's already changing my life for the better. So, um, I'm a, I'm now a firm believer that we need to look at that just as much as we do PTSD and if forever, it will be something that's important to me. Um, uh, big advocate for it. I just wanted to let you know that you, you definitely have a fan in the room and that you, you helped change my life. So I just wanted to say thank you. So I was wrong. I would cry today. <laughs> um, unusual for me to be without words. My whole life, it's been so important to be able to make a difference. 
And you guys have sacrificed everybody in this room, except me, has sacrificed their lives so that my family can be safe. And you wore two uniforms to do that. I am so grateful that in my lifetime this is being discussed, that changes are being made, and that anybody listening to this podcast, everybody in this room will think differently because PTSD could be a damn symptom. as is depression, as is anxiety. And until we deal with the underlying pieces, we're not gonna make the difference that we need to. And everybody is trying their best to save lives. And while they're saved, to live the life that they had always hoped to. And when you said that you were, that you thought that you were fine, I've never met an officer that wasn't fine fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. <laughs> Every officer I meet is fine. I always wanted cop line charts that said, <laughs> making officers less fine one call at a time, but I think I'd be the only person that really enjoyed that one. But, but that, is, that is so important. And, and looking at your eyes and, and, and the eyes of the soul, I am so grateful that you heard a message and that you did something about it. And I love that you gave the doctor a shout out. And that referral now is going to go to Copline because that's a vetted referral and that's all that we take. And for anybody out there that's listening, Joe, if it's okay, if you are seeing a neurologist, if you are seeing somebody that gets it, if you're doing ocular, vestibular, any of the treatments, please, please reach out to me. Um, personally, not through uh, the 1-800 number, but um, the office number is 732-577-8300, extension 8 is cop line. Please, it's the administrative line, please let me know, because this is how we build appropriate referrals for our officers throughout this country and Canada. It's imperative. We are truly, we have one mission. You asked what cop line's mission? It's a, it, I always say, it is a simple mission. By, by mission and words, it's simple. By task, it's daunting. Our mission is to make sure that any time an officer is going through a bad day or the worst day of their life, that they have a safe place with somebody that is vetted and trained that gets it on the other end of the line. That is the mission. We have not taken funding from other resources because they want us to be first responder, because they want the bang for the buck. They've got a hell of a gatekeeper because it's the bitch that owns the trademark. And last time I checked, nobody gets through that gatekeeper. Not while I breathe. Copline has one mission. It is to take care of active, retired police officers and their families from anything from a bad day to a full-blown mental health crisis. 
period. Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey Mrs., hey mister, I'll see this all the way through. No matter how far the sun and the moon I'll never give up on you.